So just moments ago, a friend of mine sent me a statement from the Buddha, from a Mahayana Sutra, which is so juicy, I thought I'd share it with you, it's wonderful. And it's a complimentary statement to one that I cited from the Bodhicharvatara earlier. It has to do with this whole issue, a very important issue, uh, that in order to really proceed along the path, you know, not simply get a bit of virtue here, a bit of virtue there, but actually proceed along the path, and you know what that means. These themes of, it's called sakjang, sakjang, really easy in Tibetan, sakjang. Sak means the, the accrual of merit. It's a, it, it's a silly word in English, I have to say. I think it's silly, at least from an American perspective. I mean, Morgan, what do you think of a merit? I mean, I think of brownies. Little girls, you know, little Girl Scouts. And how many merit points can you... Is that what, you, merit, is that what you com, comes to mind? I'm, Morgan? You get something really deep coming? I'm just... Because we're, we're both the same, same generation, same Americans. That's why I'm asking you. But does, when you think of merit, does something really deep come to mind? Or do you think of br- little kids, with, little girls with brownie caps? <laughs> merit badges. Yeah, that's what comes to my mind too, yeah. Merit badges. So you do 100,000 prostrations or have a merit badge. Oh, 100,000 mandala offerings. Give Kim. And yeah, she gets a merit badge. And how many little points do you get? And then you get an eagle star, and you know, then you sell a whole bunch of brownies, and you get, you know, so it doesn't have a very deep connotation, at least American English. I don't know how it translates into Spanish, Italian, and so forth. We won't explore that right now. But the meaning in Buddhism actually is very profound. It has nothing to do with brownies. <laughs> Although they're very cute, you know, and I'm sure they do a lot of virtue. Sunam. Sanam Tibet, bunya, bunya, bunya. It's power. In a very good way, it's power, the best possible power. It's that which empowers you in your practice, turbocharges your practice, propels you in your practice, brings forth fruition, brings forth success. Now, this bunya, that's the Sanskrit term, bunya, P U N Y A. If you accrue a lot of bunya, and that bunya is ripening, manifesting, and you start some business venture, well, get ready to be rich. That's one way it goes. You know? Or if you're very humble, and in a mundane sense, if you're very, live very humble, very truly, genuinely humble, not just the outer facade, but if you lead a human life and you're truly ethical, but also just exceptionally humble, watch out for the, uh, the punya of that manifesting. You're going to be beautiful. If you're a man, you're going to be very handsome. And if you're a woman, you'll be gorgeous. That's uh, punya, that's punya ripening. You know? If you're very generous, that ripens and it's affluence. You know? And so on. And that's in the mundane world. That's karma. That this is a powerful thing. Now, the, you know, there's negative karma. We know what happens with that. But this punya, that's, that's positive energy. Positive energy. And if one is going to take the continuity of consciousness seriously, which I think the evidence from yesterday, if it hadn't dawned on you already, we should start taking that seriously really quickly because the evidence is pretty compelling, you know, let alone 2,500 years of Buddhism. And so if one is taking the continuity of consciousness seriously, for which is an overwhelming evidence, if one really looks at it with an open mind, then one really should start taking reincarnation seriously. And if one takes that seriously, you better start taking karma seriously really soon, like right now. And then punya comes in. If you want to flourish in the world, samsara doesn't have to be awful. It just simply has to be unsatisfying. 
But if you'd like to flourish in samsara, you can. There are people who have wonderful lives, truly rich, wonderful, meaningful lives, and peaceful deaths. It doesn't have to be grotesque, just, you know, some discomfort. And for that to happen, it's punya. It's punya. You know. So on the mundane level, but this is not, you didn't come here to get a fortunate rebirth. I doubt any of you said, oh, I'll come to that eight-week retreat. That's going to give me a deva rebirth. I doubt it. You know, you came here, I think, with a much deeper motivation. And many of you may already have been, had your hair caught on fire uh, with the whole notion, the ideal of path, you know, of path. And, but then we apply ourselves to practice. We're all here intelligent enough to understand the nature of the instructions, to put them in. I've been listening to you. There's no one here who has inadequate intelligence to follow these teachings. You're all doing fine. But then how does it go? You know, some people, I mean, just a fact. Some people progress very quickly on the path, and some people more slowly. And some people tend to be tre- treading water a long time. You know, that's just the way it is. That's true. You know. And the same thing is true also in business and agriculture and so forth and so on. Some people very fast, some people bankrupt, and some people just not much success. You just kind of look at punya. That's what it comes down to. But keeping right to the path. In order to really progress, to gain fruition, gain realization, of things like the practice of shamatha. It's a big deal to achieve that, and you've seen. I mean, you've seen these references to it. I mean, you know, the extrasensory perception comes out of it, and one day you can talk about merit. This is like the merit supercharger. Achieve shamatha, develop some of these extrasensory perceptions with a benevolent motivation, and there's a tisha, the great atisha, you know, saying in one day you'll accumulate more merit than in a hundred lifetimes. Shamatha is not like a really good idea if you want to achieve merit. If that's important for your Vajrayana practice, like with the five preliminaries and so forth, which is half of that is all about merit, then shamatha, wow, that's a pretty big difference. And then proceeding along the path into Vipassana. So we've seen the reference earlier from Bodhicitta that if you cultivate Bodhicitta, then the amount of Merit is enormous. So that it, it just a constant stream. Remember it? That engaged bodhicitta. When that arises, even when you're just hanging out, relaxing, napping, or whatever, that merit is flowing on. It's kind of like just an investment fund that just keeps on turning out interest, 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 while you're just staring at the ceiling. It's still just you know money falling on you. Like wow, that was a good investment. So that's the nature of bodhicitta. But here's just a quick one, and we'll go to the meditation. What about the other side of the ledger? I mentioned that. There's ultimate bodhicitta, relative bodhicitta. If you'd really like to accrue great merit, and the, frankly, I mean, yes, I would like to flourish in samsara as long as I have to, ha- have to be here. But my passion, of course, is to proceed along the path, you know, and come to its culmination as quickly as possible. I'm really curious, to put it mildly, whether it's possible to achieve great transference rainbow body in the, in the modern day. I'm really curious. And there's only one way I'm going to know. So I cherish my time. I'm not young any longer, as Gatunamacha told me. You're no longer a young man. <laughs> he didn't say I was old. Don't, don't say he said that. He just said, you're not a young man anymore. He's right. So, how do you progress quickly? Shamata? Atisha said it. Bodhicitta? Shantideva could not have said it more clearly. What's the third one that would just supercharge? supercharge the amount of merit to propel you along the path. So you're one of those people like a Mozart, like a Mozart for music. You go into retreat and you come out with realization. You know, 
Well, here, a little tip from the Buddha. Okay? This is from the Sutra of the Meeting of the Father and Son. And I gave the Sanskrit. I remember Michael smiled. It's something like Pita Putta something. That big, long, long one. I remember you grinned, Michael. I, I cited a sutra earlier and gave a really nice quote from it, but it was all in Sanskrit. Well, here's a nice translation. It's the, meeting, the sutra of the meeting and father and son. But here's a just short quote, and then we'll get right to the meditation. So the Buddha in this in the sutra is accosting his the wisest of all his disciples, Shariputra. And he says, O Shariputra, the merit accruing to one who composes himself in the samadhi of concentration on suchness, such, of course, is a synonym for emptiness. Dharmata, dharmatatu. So the merit of one who, to, the accruing to one who composes himself in the samadhi of concentration on suchness. For the moment it takes to snap one's fingers, that's how long you're in samadhi. That merit is greater than accrues to one who studies dharma for an entire eon. <laughs> so I've heard there it's, Songkhub Institute, they study for seven years, get Acharya. That's good. Shenrizi Institute, I think, same. I got a PhD. It took me six years. That's good. But let's see, that didn't take an eon. And that's more. That being so, Shariputra, this samadhi and concentration on suchness should emphatic, emphatically be taught to others. <laughs> So there, if you want to accrue merit, and also one could find another quote very easily, if you want to purify, because sak, jang, means accruing merit, and jang means purifying obscurations, and that includes negative karma, negative karma. If you don't purify it, it will ripen, and you won't like it. You'll never like it. The fruition, of the, the germination of negative karma, just by definition, you really won't like it at all. So purify it before it ripens. Burn the seeds. And they'll never ripen. It'll be okay. So for the purification of obscuration, purification of negative karma, negative imprints, well, shamatha would be really helpful. <laughs> Bodhicitta, like the fire at the end of an eon, and then the ultimate bodhicitta, meditation and emptiness. Same. They're two. They're right on the same plateau. Relative bodhicitta, ultimate bodhicitta. The damage they do the destruction they do to negative karma is utterly fantastic. The purification that takes place is just mind-boggling. You know? So if you're looking for some really good purification practices, uh, meditate on emptiness for a finger snap. That would be good. Now having said that, I'm not speaking in jest. The point about it, it's so easy when we think, you know, when we hear these very advanced teachings on Dzogchen, we say, wow, that's over my head. Then we hear teachings on emptiness, and wow, that's really over my head. And over my head, over my head, you know, it's very easy to kind of think, well, I'm not there yet. I'm not there. I'm going to come back and just, I'll just follow my breath, or I'll just do a little bit of loving kindness or compassion meditation. That's not how you develop realization, by keep on telling yourself you're not up to it. In fact, it's one of the three types of laziness. The three types of laziness. Classic Buddhist teachings. Yeah, get out your notepad. One type of laziness, this, we'll, I'll postpone. this is actually important, it's already in my notes, I was going to share it with you, it just popped up, so now it's coming out. This is core Buddhism, I'm not going out on a tangent. Three types of laziness. One we're all familiar with, it's called Gitlupelelo, Gitlupelelo, it just means the laziness of sluggishness. 
It's inertia, it's heavy, it's dull, it's I don't want to get out of bed, I'm tired, I don't feel like doing anything. That, we know that one. No, no commentary needed. That's the first type. The second two are much more interesting. And this is the laziness of putting oneself down. Now, I know the Buddhist context. I've lived with traditional Buddhists for quite a number of years. And this whole notion of self-loathing and all that is very alien to that culture. But I'll tell you something that's not alien. A Buddhist practitioner, let's say a monk, in the 21st century, and saying, well, what do you say, monk? Why don't you start practicing shamatha? You should achieve shamatha. Great benefits from that. Oh, shucks. I couldn't achieve shamatha. Really, I'm just an ordinary person. I couldn't achieve that. It's very hard. This is for the great tukus, for the great brimboches, you know, the great being. But, you know, if I try, I'd never succeed, you know. Um, you know I, that's just way beyond me. Well, okay, well... How about meditate on emptiness? Oh, medit much too difficult, much too difficult. I'm not, I'm not intelligent enough to meditate on emptiness. I, don't, I have a little intellectual understanding. But Okay, bodhicitta. Oh, no, bodhicitta, way too vast, way too big for me. Vajrayana, oh, very difficult. I've heard about, so difficult. I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that. This is just laziness, you know, because what it, lets you off, it lets you off the hook of really doing anything at all. And it sounds so sweet. I'm just simple... I'm just a simple person. Yeah, I'm a simple person. So you never get the juice. You never get the confidence. It's not mean. It's not self-loathing, low self-esteem. It's just kind of like, oh, shucks, little old me. And then you can just go off and piss away your time. Because yeah, you have a justification. Oh, and then they can all... Oh, I forgot to mention. These are really degenerate times. That, that was important. These are degenerate times. And you know, people in degenerate times, even if we practice, we won't gain realization. Oh, man, I've heard that one numerous times. That's called laziness. Where is the degenerate time? Show me exactly where, where is it. Where is the degenerate time? Is it over where Brian is? Maybe there's some degenerate time over there. Or wh when did it occur? Would it occur at 10 o'clock this morning or at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? When was that degenerate time? And what was the nature of that time? What made it, did it that, what made that time degenerate? What was it, a virus or was it amoeba or... What was it that made that time, that afternoon, or that year? Which, which was the year? Was it 2012? Was that the degenerate year? You know, you just make up all this stuff. It's not that the times are not degenerate, but you're the center of your mandala. You're the center of your mandala. You're the center of your time. Is your time degenerate? If so, clean up your act. If it's not degenerate, you have no excuse. <laughs> We don't have to be contaminated by other people's attitudes, their behavior, their beliefs, their, their faults. We don't have to. They're not, they're not actually contagious. You know, we can develop our immune system with intelligence. And then we can be living in times which are degenerate for other people as they are in the center of their own mandalas. It doesn't have to be degenerate for ours. So that's that. You know, it's a type of laziness, really. A shirking of responsibility, a shirking of view shirking of inspiration, self-defeating. And then the final one of the three types of laziness, this is the kind of laziness 
that's fixated on negative activity. Negative activity. That doesn't necessarily mean going out and doing really terrible things. It's not the implication here. It's, uh, it's a fixation on just devoting oneself single-pointedly to mundane activities with mundane aspirations. In other words, the, the workaholic in the Silicon Valley who's putting in 16-hour days, that's called laziness. Because all the energy is going for something that at the very most is just going to give you a bit of money and prestige and power in this lifetime, and that's it. And the, if that's all there is to it, that doesn't even give you anything in the next lifetime. Nothing. If you think that, you know, I, I, I started up a, sta a, a startup and it was what became an IPO and it went ballistic, it went supernova, and I made a whole bunch of money, that's very nice. Some old karma ripened, but what are you doing today? You've got a lot of money. How's that going to help you? When you die, they'll say he was really rich, but he's not anymore. We got his money now. They'll just be laughing, they're laughing all the way to the bank. You know, they got your money. Can't even carry a checkbook with you. Not even a Visa card. Not even a MasterCard. They say, never leave, never leave home without it. You will. <laughs> Show me the Bardo being with a MasterCard. You know, and exactly what slot do they put it into? So... It winds up, I mean, this jawing nyamba, this, this pursuit simply on mundane concerns, winds up, sure, it gives you some hedonic pleasure in this lifetime, possibly, quite possibly, but then in terms of longer, longer benefit, just nothing. And then in the midst of all of that, if you're just acting with mental afflictions and hostility, greed, and so forth and so on, then you're just digging a hole. So no benefit. So it's just laziness. So there's a workaholic burning his brains out, trying to make more money, getting the business going, that going, etc., etc., trying to become a rock star, trying to become a professional, trying to succeed there, there, there. You know, look, they look so hard-working, and they are. It's such a waste. Just a waste. You know, all they get is just mundane, some success, some cipher, some symbol of what a yogi gets, the real thing. A yogi achieves shamatha. And everything these people, these workaholics, are looking for, which is bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, they're looking for it through all of these symbols, right? Look at my car, look at my wife, look at my house, look at my reputation, look how many books I've published, whatever. You know. And they're all just symbols for what the yogi gets, straight with no symbolism at all. Just, right, just dunked right into the juice, right into the pool of bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality. That's why from that perspective, samsara just looked like a madhouse. Looking in all the wrong places for that which you already have. And never looking there. So, those are the three types of laziness. And then we should know then, since I can't skip this, so if you have laziness, insofar as you're prone to laziness, either putting yourself down, or just feeling lethargic, or just fix, starting to fixate, fixate on useless activities. Just before going there, I remember it was, who was it? I think that was one very well-known lama, very high lama came to the West, and this is years ago. And he noted, you people don't even know how to relax. Even when you're relaxing, you're doing something. You see people, and I travel a lot on planes, and they're doing solitaire. You know, they, they can't just sit there. They're doing the, you know, with their tablets or whatever, they're doing solitaire. They're just doing anything in order to not do nothing. 
anything. You know, like they just can't be there. You know what they should do in airplanes? Is provide you with a little socket so you can give yourself shocks. <laughs> <laughs> At least then you wouldn't have to be alone with your own mind. You go, oh. <laughs> It's a way to pass the time. <laughs> but only in the business class. <laughs> in the economy class, just give them more of that junk food. That'll keep them busy. Some of those little pretzels. Just keep on throwing pretzels on <laughs> They'll just eat them, you know, just keep on eating them and eating them, because there's nothing else to do. You know? And they'd absolutely not want to do nothing. So there it is, it's back to Pascal, just not knowing how to sit quietly in one's own chamber. So there it is. So in terms of now quickly, remedies. First one is very interesting. It's called Xinjiang in Tibetan. It's suppleness. Suppleness. Xinjiang. Xinjiang. Suppleness. And this is exactly what comes from shamatha. Shamatha is designed to produce suppleness, a body and mind. And the suppleness is just that. It's this malleability, this fluidity, this ready to be of service. So your body is fit for action. Your mind is fit for action. It's light. It's buoyant. It's malleable, it's supple, and as you cultivate that, then late, then that, especially that lelo, that that lelo, that lethargy of that uh, laziness of lethargy, that's gone. That's gone. You know, there's a lightness, a buoyancy about it, and you you wouldn't even know what lethargy is. You know, but I, I can't imagine that. What would that be feel like? Tell me, what's what's lethargy like? You know, so that's the first one. Second one is faith. Faith, deba. It's not just believing something, it's having really faith in something. Faith in yourself. As Gatsu Rinpoche said, you know, his old students who are complaining, constantly complaining about how their, their practice is not as good as they wanted to. Said, well, not because you don't have enough faith in the Lamas, you don't have enough faith in yourself. So faith, confidence, trust, that really actually moves. Quite a, quite a powerful force. Quite a powerful force. It's proven that numerous times in history. Don't need to give examples. Faith can be very powerful, very motivating, very inspiring, energizing. You really have faith in something, confidence, inspiration. That's the second one. Third one's aspiration. That's having a vision. Really having a vision. And the fourth one? What was that one? If I don't get it right now, we'll just go right to the meditation. Shinja. Oh yeah, Sundu. <laughs> Enthusiasm. Virya, the fourth perfection. The fourth perfection. Virya. Enthusiasm. We have enthusiasm for something, whether it's the four immeasurables, whether you know, make make it, it by the way, enthusiasm is not simply enthusiasm like for tennis. That's just called gawa. Enjoyment, you like it. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with liking tennis. But that's not virya. So enthusiasm in the Buddhist context, what I'm translating as enthusiasm, virya, tsundu, it's always enthusiasm for virtue. If it's not enthusiasm for virtue, then we, we don't call it enthusiasm. We call it enjoyment or whatever, attraction, whatever you like. But enthusiasm for any type of virtue, whether starting a foundation to help children and doing that with enthusiasm, that's enthusiasm. Wanting to go into a 10-year retreat, that's enthusiasm. Wanting to do your very best as a parent to raise your children, Give them the best, best help you possibly can to prepare them for a difficult century. That's enthusiasm. And when you have that enthusiasm, of course, then laziness just vanishes. It's gone. Like that. So 
That's helpful to know. Oh, yeah. So now, let's just have one session in silence. Choose your method. But I want to say this. As you're preparing, go ahead and get in your postures. But I cited, I, I quoted that wonderful statement by the Buddha to Shariputra in the meeting of the Father and Son Sutra to make this point, And that is, whatever understanding of emptiness you have, use it. Use it. Don't say, I have no realization, I have no realization. Don't keep on reminding yourself, hammering yourself, I don't have realization. If you have even a little thumbnail full of understanding, then use that. Use whatever you have. Even just a little schmidgen, you know. An understanding of pratit and samapadi, the understanding of the nature of empty appearances. Whatever you have, use it. And what it, use it means to view reality with this understanding you have. In other words, it's absolutely not brainwashing or indoctrination. But if you've, you've understood something, then start viewing reality with that understanding. And that's how realization grows, and not by simply reminding yourself every day, I don't have realization of emptiness. Whatever understanding you have, it goes very briefly. This is the final note before we go in. It goes from understanding, that's from, come from hearing teachings, reading, studying, re and reflecting, <coughs> and through that process gaining some unsound understanding. And then as you go into the meditation, what arises is experience, getting some sense, some actual experience, not just an intellectual understanding, but some real sense of it, experience arises. And then continue with that. Go with your strengths. Go with your experience. And then realization arises. A spike of realization there. A breakthrough there. A flash there. Actual realization. Realization means you know something. It's not just a feeling or a mood or something like that. But, ah, I got that. I got it. That's realization. It will come and go. But back it up with your shamatha. Return to it. Sustain it. Prolong it. Nurture it. And then that realization starts really going into the marrow of your mind. It goes right into your core. And so that you're living that, you're viewing reality from that perspective. In other words, it's a way of, it's insight that it simply becomes more and more the way you view reality. That you wake up in the morning or you're dreaming at night, you're walking about, you're meditating during the daytime, and that's just the way you're viewing everything. Now it's sunk in. It's embedded itself, permeated your very way of viewing reality. And it's a way of knowing, right? And when you really deeply go into that, fully supported with shamatha, then there's deng topa, and that's acquiring confidence. And then it's sealed. Then you don't lose it. That's irreversible. So as we go into your, whatever practice you're going to right now, as much as you can, arouse a motivation of bodhicitta, so your practice is imbued with bodhicitta, even though you're not thinking about it as you do the practice, and whatever understanding or even experience you might have of emptiness, of suchness, utilize it, apply it to your practice, and that will immensely enrich it, and after some time, in a finger snap, it will accrue more merit than an eon merely of study. So let's go into the practice. Let's go straight to the text. Time is a passing. So we're on page 179. And I'll read, read just, a, just a sentence or two that I've already read, just to place this in context. He's referring to one of the five poisons. Five poisons being the three poisons plus two more. And the two more are envy and, and uh, pride or arrogance. Hatred, of course, being one of the three poisons and the five poisons. So just referring to that one as an example. 
hatred has never remained immutably. Moreover, the birth of hatred is self-arisen and is a natural appearance of the creative power of primordial consciousness. So I did comment on that earlier. And let's just pause for a moment there. There's something quite interesting, and it's very relevant, very relevant. And that is we have these three poisons, attachment, attachment, craving, uh, desire, uh, but afflictive, in an afflictive mode. And then anger, hatred, and all of that, and then delusion. I remember when I was training quite intensively with Gautamachi in the early 90s, uh, sometimes, just in my life, anger would flare up. I'm a bit hot-tempered. I'm fire, a lot of fire. So anger comes up. And uh, so I went to him and kind of complained. I don't like it. <laughs> I wish it would go away. You know, and uh, he said, stop it. <laughs> <coughs> he wasn't saying stop the anger, stop being angry. He was saying stop complaining. <laughs> and he said, when anger comes up, view it. That's what he said. He was very, it's almost Zenish. He would give extensive teachings. You've seen them. But when he's giving on one-on-one, it tends to be like, you know, I give you the finger. That's kind of a direct pointing out instruction. <laughs> but here he just said, when anger arises, don't be upset about it. Don't be troubled by it. Look at it. Penetrate it. Take that sharp ice pick of your attention and stab it. Look at it really closely. Penetrate it. So I've mentioned before, there's a common theme here. Very, very important, by the way. It's truly important. I'll give you the parallel, just as a reminder to see how all of this fabric is of one piece. That practice earlier in shamatha without a sign. Examine closely. Oscillate inwards, in upon your very sense of being an agent. You remember that one. And then probing deeper and deeper and deeper. And if you probe, if you take, just probe, penetrate all the way back to its root, it's going to be Samantavadra. Right? Penetrate deep enough, and you're going to discover Rigpa. That's what he said. Remember? This may be a shamatha practice for you, but if you penetrate deeply enough, you're going to shatter right through, cut right through, not only your mind, but the substrate consciousness, and cut right on through to Rigpa. You know? But it's by tracing it right back to its source. So we take anger. We all know it. Anger. It burns, right? Burns. So if you, when anger rises, this is really good practice, and you can use it a week from now too. When anger arises, it's almost like a very strong person gets our head in their hands. And so, what shall I be angry at? Okay, the clock. I'm angry at the clock. And the anger takes my head and clock. And the attention is fixated on, I'm taking a trivial example because I don't want to use a person. So the clock, why not? That's, that's going to be my cipher of what really is pissing me off. And like that. And it just keeps you there, like, like you're heading a vice. And we get start fixating, we ruminate, we come back to it, come back to it, back to it. That's what it does, right? And the same thing, if it's infatuation, craving, or greed, hey, same thing. These mental afflictions, they get our, ten, our head in a vice, and just, we get fixated on it. It's jealousy, it's arrogance, any of the five poisons. 
We lock onto it as the object. And then as we're locking onto it, it feeds it. It feeds it. I'm looking at it in an angry way. This means I'm seeing how repulsive, offensive, disgusting, negative is 100% negative. When anger, the mental affliction of anger, captures the mind, whatever is tending to with anger, it, it turns out to be totally black, totally negative. As you are tending to it with anger, you don't see its good qualities. If it has any qu- good qualities, they're invisible. You might see them later, but not when your attention is locked into anger. And likewise, if we're craving something, in that moment, we're infatuated, craving, grasping to something with intense desire, then in that moment, it's 100% desirable. So there it is. But now the interesting point is if we can practice engaging such practices as taking the mind as the path. So the the value of this skill is really priceless. It's truly priceless. Those 85, I doubt that they have it. They can't afford it. You know? That ability, because you can't buy it. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how many, how many pharmaceutical interests you just buy up, and so forth, or even meditation teachers you hire. Okay, just do it for me. I don't have time. You do it for me. You know? Can't do it. So what is it? You know what it is. It's resting there in the stillness of your awareness, and anger comes up, and you observe it. In other words, it doesn't storm your palace. It doesn't take over the palace. Your mind. Your awareness has not been fused, cognitive fusion, not fused with anger. And that skill, it's priceless. Invaluable. It's priceless because it's invaluable. Uh, develop that ability. So anger arises and it can't get your head in a vice. It can't fixate your attention on what you're angry about. You forcefully, using some muscle power, you say, I'm choosing not to attend to that thing that's really pissing me off. I'm choosing to attend to the pissing off business the anger, the mind that is angry. I'm, I'm in, much more interested in that than that which is really making me angry. Because this one, if I understand this one, this could actually help me. Whereas if I just keep on focusing on what's pissing me off, that's just going to piss me off more, and I will just be perpetuating my samsara forever. And, and it's actually literally forever. But if you gain insight into anger, you actually might have a key to liberation. Right? So if you can observe that anger, just like you're, you're a scientist of anger. Right. I'm so fascinated. What's the nature of this toxin? Like, you know, there are, bio, there are medical doctors, biologists, and so forth that get fascinated by disease. Let's totally, and let's write a doctoral dissertation on the Ebola virus. Let's learn everything there is to be, and I'll publish a paper on it, a dissertation. I want to know everything. What are the symptoms when people get it? How do they die? How long does it take? How does it destroy their body? What does it do? So fascinated. People do that. That's good, right? Well, we should be scientists of anger, because that that's done much more damage than Ebola. But Ebola is like peewee league, like amateur. Anger has done so much more damage than any, even the bubonic plague. That only killed, what, one-third of the European population, knocked world population down to 375 million, you know, because it wiped out a lot. It went from China and across over to Europe. But compare what the, the bubonic plague did, the, the, dark, the black plague, and compare what anger has done in human history. Oh, there's no Carampus Harris. Bubonic plague is kid stuff. What anger has done, oh my goodness. No comparison. So we should understand that one. We who are interested in the mind, we should really do some deep investigation. So here's what I'm getting at with not too many words, because maybe we should get to the text. But this is really crucial. 
this might actually be more helpful today than reading the rest of this passage. You know, and we'll try to do both. Be interested. Don't be afraid. Don't be regretful. Don't beat yourself up. Don't tell you how bad you are because your, your mind has gotten angry. Screw it. Just look at it. Observe that anger. Objectify it. Observe it. Attend to it. Inve investigate it. And then probe into it like with an ice pick, like with a laser mind. Probe right into it, just as you earlier did, probing right into experience of being the observer. And see if you can trace it back to its source. Where did it come from? Probe right into it. It's not thinking about it. It's looking right into it. And I'll, I'll give away the plot, because we don't have a whole lot of time here. Probe right into the nature of anger. And probe right through your mind, because it's manifesting. It's flowering your mind. But everything that comes up, every subjective impulse that arises in your mind is coming from substrate consciousness. Everyone. Every virtue, every vice, every, everything. It's all coming from substrate consciousness, right? Not from brain cells. Substrate consciousness. So tr take that flowering of anger, you know, malevolence, all that nasty stuff, flowering there in your mind, and then take it right down, take its root down, right down, right down to the substrate consciousness. I'll tell you what you find. Luminosity. Luminosity. You find luminosity. Anger is bright. It's like a flame. When you really piss off at somebody, you illuminate it. You torch it. It's bright, it's sharp, it's clear, it's got a real sharp edge, right? You're delusional, but with a lot of sharpness. It's luminosity. That's when you strip it of its afflictive nature and get to its juice. What gives anger the juice? It's got a lot of juice, a lot of power, doesn't it? And you get really angry, man, you can slash, you can burn, you can stab, you can really, with your mouth, your body. A lot of energy there. It's really sharp. It's bright. It burns. It's luminosity. And luminosity is clean. Luminosity is ethically neutral. It's not by nature virtuous, but it's ethically neutral, which means it's not afflictive. Let's take another one. Craving. Greed. Lust. That whole genre there. We all know what it's like. Fixating on something, that, will make me, that does make me happy. That will make me happy. I've got to get it. I've got to keep it. Got to. When it arises, it feels good. <laughs> it really feels good. Maybe I'll get it. Maybe I can keep it. And you're smiling. Oh, I really want it. You know? It's a mental affliction. It's delusional. But then instead of just being troubled by it and so forth, well, do the same thing. Probe right into it. Probe right into it and take it right down to its taproot, right down into the substrate consciousness. And lo and behold, it's bliss. It's bliss. When we're experiencing that intense craving, it feels good. <laughs> when you get blocked, it doesn't feel good. But when we're, we're succeeding, we get what we're wanting or think we will get what we're wanting or we have it and we're holding on to it and we are succeeding, it feels good. And that feeling good, that's coming from the bliss of the substrate consciousness. And then think about ignorance. Ignorance. You know. Kind of just being spaced out, dull, unknowing. That's pretty much it. So observe your mind. Observe it when it arises. Observe ignorance when it arises. And trace that one back. And now you'll guess where that's going to lead you. 
Non-conceptuality. Like what? What? Trace that to its source, and it's non-conceptuality. But in the substrate consciousness, that non-conceptuality is permeated by knowing, right? Cognizance. Cognizance. But when it flowers as a mental affliction, then it's just, you know, stupid. (laughs) It's quite interesting. And the bliss, the luminosity, and non-conceptuality, none of those are virtuous. By nature, they're not virtuous. They're new, but they're not afflictive. And they actually feel very good. So that's what he's getting at. But that's on the relative level. That's on the relative substrate consciousness, relative level, right? Well, why don't we just, since, you know, since we're here, this is Dzogchen, why don't we just keep on, get that ice pick out again? Because you don't want to stay there. There's a substrate consciousness. So, take that which was hatred, and you've nailed down to luminosity, and I just keep on penetrating through, down to its now its ultimate ground. And you know what it is, don't you? Joe, what is it? What, what is it? On the deepest ground, level of primordial consciousness, which type? Anger, hatred. Which of the five types of, five facets of primordial consciousness do you think it would be? Yeah. Mirror-like. Yeah, trace anger, hatred, that whole genre. Trace that all the way down to its ultimate ground. It's mirror-like. Mirror-like primordial consciousness. And there it is. Well, that's a virtue. That's a quality of Buddha mind. You know? There it is, way up there on the top, on the surface of the swamp. It's manifesting as hatred. Oh, so much, so much damage that's done by hatred, anger, hostility, aggression, malevolence. But trace it down in its luminosity and trace it down. It's mirror-like mirror-like primordial consciousness. That's really good news. And that's how it manifests. When you're viewing it from the ground, when you're viewing it from the perspective of pristine awareness, you see it as mirror-like primordial consciousness. That's how it appears to you. Take the other one. Let's take this one. Craving, intense desire, infatuation, and so forth. And we trace it down? Okay, it's bliss. Trace that one down. Trace that one down. Kim, what does it go to? Primordial consciousness, yeah, discerning primordial, different translations, discerning primordial consciousness. Sosur tope yeshe. Discerning is probably the best. Sosur topa. Discerning, you're able to sharply distinguish this from that. Okay? Discerning primordial consciousness. Right? So that mirror-like is embodied as akshobhya. And this one embodied as amitabha. Akshobhya at the heart, amitabha at the throat. Discerning primordial consciousness, manifesting way up there is craving, infatuation, greed, and so forth. Way down here, pure as pure as the sky. And then take delusion, you trace that down to non-conceptuality in the substrate consciousness, and penetrate right on through. And what do you get in primordial consciousness? What do you get there, genie? Ultimate what? You're exactly well, Varotsana? Yes. It's exactly right, and it is, I'm just, I, I heard the words, and I'm just going to say what I know you're saying, what you're meaning, and that is, it's a primordial consciousness of Dharmadhatu, and that's what you're saying, yeah, and it's embodied as Varochana, and it's on the crown chakra, yeah, so there it is, delusion, you say, wait, 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 delusion, that's the root of samsara, yeah, until you trace it to its source, and then it's primordial consciousness of Dharmadhatu, you know? so this is how things appear. In stage of generation, you're, you're imagining all of this. You're imagining, imagining pure vision. And here you simply have pure vision. 
because you're viewing it from that perspective. It's the view of the great perfection. So that was not a meaningless tangent. So once again, that statement, moreover, the birth of hatred is self-arisen. That is, from this perspective, it does not arise. This is a crucial point. Remember yesterday I said, psychologists have a lot of insight, Buddhist Abhidhamma, and so forth, have a lot of insight into the, the, the factors of origination, factors of disillusion, and so forth and so on, the causality of the emergence of hatred and so forth. A lot of good knowledge, West and East. But from this perspective, from Rikpa perspective, it's not Prachita Sambhupada. It's not arising independence upon causing addition from that perspective. It's just spontaneous actualization. But of course, it's spontaneously being actualized as a mirror-like primordial consciousness. That's why it says it is self-arisen as the natural appearance of the creative power of primordial consciousness. Thus, since it cannot be said that it arises from this, the nature of hatred is unborn. This is actually fantastic. <laughs> it's quite amazing. It's blowing my mind. It cannot, from this perspective, from the, from the relative perspective, of course it arises from this. It arises from the substrate. It arises, here's the primary cause. Here's the cooperative conditions. It's been analyzed completely. It's totally understood. And it does arise from that relative perspective. But from this one, you can't say it arises. It arises from this, not from Rikpa perspective. And therefore, the nature of hatred is unborn. So it appears, but it's not there. You know, nalamadupa. It appears, but it's not established. It's not real. It's real for the relative mind. It's completely clouded in delusion. But when you're seeing things as they are, from the perspective of Rikpa, hatred is completely unborn. It never happens. It never comes into being. In the so that's in terms of its origins. Okay, we're going to do this classic thing. Origin, location, destination. That's classic. That's deep. This is deep, deep vipassana. So from, from the perspective, but this is the insights already there. From the perspective, hatred is unborn. It never actually occurs. It never actually arises. It doesn't arise independence upon certain causing conditions. And therefore, its origins are totally empty. Right? But then, once this so-called hatred has arisen, then he says... In the meantime, this hatred has no location. It doesn't exist anywhere. Empty of location in the present moment. That's good. If it did, if it really existed someplace, if we're going to reify, if we're going to imagine that hatred somehow is inherently existent, after all, how could it not be? It's done so much damage. How many wars? How many, what was it, 20 million? 20 million people died in the First World War? Something like that. And how did it come from? Hatred, arrogance, a bit of greed, but mostly hatred. You know, so a mental affliction caused 20 million people to die, something like that. So how could something that causes, basically, you know, crippled European civilization, how could that be unborn? Well, that's the point. It's unborn, and yet it's causally efficacious on that level. But here, if we're really asking, but does that hatred, does it really exist someplace? Is it really there? He says it has no location. And if it were to have location, then here's the implications. This is, again, following things out, following the implications of whatever view you take. If it did have some real location, and if all the hatred that has arisen from beginningless eons until now were to be put together and measured, it would be impossible for it to fit into the universe with its many thousands of galaxies. That is, there just wouldn't be enough space for all the hatred throughout all of time. 
if it actually you know, has, has some, filled some space, there wouldn't be enough space. Hatred is unborn and has no location. So however it arises, it has never been grounded in reality. It's not really there. It never emerged from anywhere, and it's not located anywhere. Therefore, where has the hatred that arose until yesterday gone today? Certainly a rhetorical question. It doesn't exist anywhere. Never really arose from anywhere, didn't exist anywhere, and now that it's gone, well, where is it now? Where does, so where will all the hatred arise? Where will, where will the hatred that arises tomorrow come from today? And where will it exist? Where is the hatred that arises today present now? So this is, again, this is Vipassana. Really looking into the total emptiness of hatred. And when doing so, you being in the center of your mandala, then you've absolutely disempowered hatred. When love arises, where is hatred gone? So there's the destination. Jung ne dosum. Where is the origin? Where's the location? Where does it go? So here's what we're dealing with. This is marvelous to see this in the broader context. Because it is said, and I think ever so truly, that love and hatred, loving kindness, of course, loving kindness and hatred cannot possibly exist in the same mind stream at the same time. They can exist two seconds apart, but in the same moment, absolutely impossible. One will go. One will go. Right? And so if you're having hatred, 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 and then love arises. Hatred's gone. It's just bumped out. C cannot coexist in the same mind stream. So where did it go? And we've all experienced this, right? Being really pissed off, and then a loved one comes in, or somebody gives us a hug, or just something pleasant happens. And we say, oh, oh, thank you. I was just feeling so terrible, so angry. and It really calmed my mind. I'm so grateful. Thank you. So where did it go? That which was tormenting you. you know, where did it go? It didn't go anywhere. It didn't come from anywhere. It wasn't located anywhere. It didn't go anywhere. Empty. Empty. And so that's good Madhyamaka. But the thing here in Dzogchen is that's actually how you see it. You actually see it that way. Right? And then, of course, you see it not only as empty, but you see it as a spontaneous cre creative display of pristine awareness. It's not only empty. That's the difference again between a bodhisattva, simply a bodhisattva, and a vidyadatta. An Arya bodhisattva sees it as empty for sure. But a vidyadatta sees it as empty and as nothing other than a display of pristine awareness. So they, all these mental formations, all the five poisons and so forth, they all appear from the creative power of self-arisen primordial consciousness. So they are not additional, and they are not eliminated even if they are rejected. So this is a very interesting point. Shravakayana. Uh, and generally, for that matter, Bodhisattvayana, Mahayana. It's said that as the one becomes an Arya Bodhisattva, let's follow the, Maya, uh, the, Bodha, the Mahayana path, you become an Arya Bodhisattva, and then you proceed along the, the ten Bhumis, the ten Arya Bodhisattva stages, and finally culminating in enlightenment. It's said that um, that you abandon, you ab that is, the, the, you abandon these mental afflictions. So by the time you get to the eighth Ayurveda Bhumi, 
your mind is now has abandoned, is totally free of mental afflictions. They'll never arise again. And not only mental afflictions, but the seeds, the potentialities for them. They're gone. They're gone. Just that when you're in eight-stage Ayurveda, it doesn't matter what people do to you. You'll just never experience the mental, mental affliction of craving, delusion, hostility, or, any, or envy, or arrogance, or all the derivative ones. They'll never happen. There's just nothing that can happen that can possibly arouse these because they are abandoned and their seeds are abandoned. You know, it's like if you put napalm all over a field and it's all fresh napalm. You put as many seeds in that field as you like. Not one's going to sprout. It's just a toxic environment for any seed. And in a very nice way, the mind of an eight, you know, an Arya Bodhisattva on the eight Bodhisattva ground is just completely incompatible. No seed can germinate there, a mental affliction. So you'd say, okay, then that's cut, that's terminated. That's terminated. And likewise for the arhat, when a person becomes an arhat, then those mental afflictions are cut, they're terminated, they're gone. And when the arhat then passes into nirvana, then all of the five skandhas terminated, gone. That's all the mundane virtues, all the mental afflictions, every mother, of course, they're gone. They became nothing, right? They were toxins, now those toxins are gone. That's not the Dzogchen view. And in general, it's not the Vajrayana view either. The Vajrayana, generally, the Vajrayana takes very seriously the conservation principle, like in modern physics, but actually more so than modern physics. And that is, you can't turn anger into nothing. You can't turn virtue into nothing. You can't turn any of the mental afflictions into nothing. You can't simply terminate them so they become nothing. What happens is, Let's say, let's say in the practice of Dzogchen, as you're proceeding along, becoming a Vidyadhara, and you go through this four stages, four levels of being a Vidyadhara, you, know, uh, you don't terminate. You don't terminate the mental afflictions. You re- reduce them back to where they came from. They no longer manifest afflictively. They have been dissolved back into their pure source. So anger is brought back home to mirror-like primordial consciousness. Craving brought them at home the discerning primordial consciousness, and even delusion, the arch enemy, brought back to primordial consciousness of the absolute space of phenomena. So there's no termination. They never got rejected. They simply went back home. Now the Vajrayana, the whole idea is to transmute them, take the energy, the power of desire, of hostility, and even of delusion, transmute them by an alchemical kind of process, and transmute them into pristine awareness. Right? Back to primordial consciousness. All these skillful means. So rather than trying to simply antidote, remedy, counteract mental afflictions, the Vajrayana shortens three countless eons to maybe a couple of lifetimes or even shorter by taking all the energy of those mental afflictions and then getting them on your side, getting the energy on your side. And so you take the energy of them and you transmute them into primordial consciousness and they actually empower you on the path. That's it. But in Dzogchen, you don't need to transmute them. They release themselves. They release themselves. They release themselves right back in their own nature. Rangjo, right back to the ground. So you don't need to fix them. They fix themselves. That's quite wonderful. So they are not additional. That is, these mental afflictions, they're not additional. There's not something outside of the domain of pristine awareness. Like pristine, as if pristine awareness just gives rise to a whole bunch of nice stuff. But if rotten stuff happens, like hatred and you know, craving and so forth, 
that they'll be coming from some bad place. No, in fact, they're not additional. They, they're not arising from some source outside of pristine awareness. Which means when they go home, they go right back into pristine awareness. So they are not additional and they're not eliminated even if they're rejected. So even if hatred no longer arises because you've burned it to a crisp, it has been rejected. I mean, you're not suffering from hatred anymore, but it wasn't eliminated. And now you know why. It's gone back to its source. They are present in the natural liberation of their own character. That is, they, they, they solve themselves, they heal, they release themselves, so they're no longer toxic. So they are not destroyed or released by other antidotes. This is Dzogchen. You're not bringing some counterforce to remedy them, annihilate them, fix them, repair them. Nothing from outside. I mean, it's really the most inspiring thing one could possibly say about the mind, is that it has this capacity to heal itself without bringing in anything from outside. It's ent entirely an inside job. Rangdu. Self-liberating. So they're not destroyed or released by any other antidotes. Hatred nakedly seen. So beautifully said. Nakedly seen, not through the veils of the ordinary mind. Not seen simply as with quasi-naked in the substrate consciousness. Where you're seeing it is just sheer luminosity. That's halfway point. But now naked means right from the ground. You're viewing it now from the perspective of pristine awareness. Hatred nakedly seen is primordially present as self-liberating. You see it. It releases itself and it is effortlessly liberated in its own state. So that's really clear. Right now there is no additional basis of liberation. In other words, you need, don't need to, I mean, don't look outside yourself with the Buddha, don't take no external refuge. Just, it's entirely an inside job. There's no additional basis. You don't need to rely on anything outside of Rigpa to completely liberate your mind. By identifying hatred as self-arising primordial consciousness, and by transforming hatred itself into the path of actual meditation, all appearances arise as meditation. I mean, this is the most explicitly malevolent, most explicitly toxic, most explicitly destructive of the five poisons, right? If you had a neighbor, and, that here, and the, you have one neighbor that's really kind of stupid, and another one's really greedy, another one is really envious, and another one that had, what would that be, uh, arrogant, but another one was just hateful, which one are you most like to be away from? I think a pretty obvious Obvious point, yeah. And so the meanest one, not the deepest one, deepest one delusion, but the meanest one that shows its meanness. Because boy, if you encounter somebody who's filled with hatred, it's really obvious. You look at their face, you can tell. And then as soon as they're acting, even the tone of voice, you'll know. Oh, hey, you know, fight or flight. You know, look out. Uh oh, that's a that's a dangerous one. You know, if it's craving, it might look kind of attractive. But to hatred, nothing attractive about it. So he took the kind of the meanest kid on the block of these five poisons. And he said, if you can see that one, if you can see that one, then you're in good shape. What did he say then? By identifying hatred, if you can identify hatred, not imagine it, but actually identify it as self-arisen primordial consciousness, and thereby transform hatred itself into the path of actual meditation, and other words, the juice, the energy of hatred is actually propelling you towards awakening, 
If you can somehow manage to subdue, master, hatred, which is the meanest one of all of them, if you can harness the power of hatred to take you to liberation, then you're set. Because now what? All appearances rise in meditation. Everything. You got the meanest one on the block, the other ones all just fall, they fall into line. Right? Then with no need to, to seek elsewhere for meditation, the knot of mental grasping that occurs in shamatha will unravel right where it is. I think it's clear, isn't it? The knot of mental grasping that occurs in shamatha is the mental grasping to bliss, luminosity, non-conceptuality. It's the mental grasping that's grasping onto still reifying awareness itself and still quietly in a very subtle way still reifying grasping to one's own identity. And that will unravel right where it is. So this is the non-meditation meditation that infinitely transcends, transcends shamatha. And then, of course, the great temptation is, good, let's skip shamatha. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we need shamatha, but this is so much better. And it is. It's so overwhelmingly better, there's no comparison. But then, of course, if you haven't developed shamatha, you may get a little glimpse here and you won't be able to sustain it. That's the problem, you know. That the methods of Dzogchen were not designed to stabilize the mind. Shamatha was. That was a bit slow. We're going to stop there. We still have six days. And I think we'll be just fine. I think this will all work out. So, this to my mind, I don't know. I, I hope you find this even a fraction as juicy as I do. It's quite extraordinary. Truly amazing. So good. And that should keep us busy for the next... This actually is in practice, right? This is not way up there. Oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. I just do what Gertrude and what you told me to do. But not just hatred. Maybe hatred won't arise in the next 24 hours. It'd be nice if it doesn't. But one of the other... Other... other Probably will. <laughs> one of the five afflictions or poisons probably will come up. And instead of feeling bad about it, stare them down. Superman eyes. See if they can withstand your gaze. Wouldn't it be wonderful if all your mental afflictions became bashful maidens? Every time you look at me, oh, please don't. I can't stand it. You know. or that guy in the, what was it? The, I love the movies. X, the X-Men. Remember the guy that always had to wear the, the sunglasses? Because he, he would have this laser and he'd torch everything. Like, oh, no. So be that guy. You know. Any mental afflictions, you go, oh, I'm going to look at you. Oh. Zap him. Oh, last one. Good. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow morning.